Hello, my name is Joel McLeod. I'm Roland Tana. And welcome to another episode of the 905er podcast. Uh, today we're doing a bit of an old school, uh, old fashioned rant episode, because why not? <laughs> uh, we're welcoming, welcoming back to the podcast, a uh, longtime friend, longtime uh, ranter, along with us, uh, Laura Steiner from the Milton Reporter. Laura, thanks for, uh, for coming on and uh, joining us on this Easter Monday morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, two things we wanted to talk about that we thought were, uh, were ripe for a good old taken to the woodshed uh, analysis. Um, the first one is the Ontario government's, uh, I'm going to say, forcing municipalities in the 905 and across the province in general, but let's focus on the 905, to take a municipal housing pledge, which is the province goes to these various municipalities and says, you have to build X thousand of housing units by, I'm going to say, I believe it was 2031, which is in keeping with the province's overall plan to build 1.5 million new homes in that time period. And this is kind of how they're going to break it down. So it's, you know, not, you know, all, all of one region doesn't have to build one and a half million new homes. Um, which sounds kind of practical on on it on the surface, but the question we kind of had, or I, I kind of had, was where's all this eagerness from these municipalities to sign on to this pledge? Especially when a lot of these municipalities got elected on the idea of they needed to take back the planning process and they need to start building these building their homes or these municipalities in the way that you know they want control over they want to to have access to uh for, perfect example um here in burlington uh the burlington city council pledged to build i, I want i believe it was twenty nine thousand new homes i could be wrong uh but they the point is they, they yeah twenty nine thousand new homes uh here in burlington now the entire council got elected on the basis of they've we've lost control of development in Burlington, that too many high rises are being built and not enough homes. And it's just, you know, Burlington's losing its quote unquote, its flavor uh, and whatnot. Uh, going next door to Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton recently had the, the big hoopla over the white belt controversy where the city council said, no, we're not going to develop it. Or uh, province said, no, you are now. Uh, and that, they had a. They now had a pledge to build forty. Uh, sorry, forty-seven thousand new homes. Uh, this came down from the municipal affairs uh, minister Steve Clark, and ultimately the the council voted twelve to two in support of this uh, favor. Now they said they're going to build just within the the original urban boundary, but still. My question to you guys is, where did, where's the backbone of some of these municipalities to say? You know, where's our say in in this brave new future of development in in Ontario? Laura, do you want to go first on that one? Sure, I'll go first. <laughs> I, I'm just um, walking up ahead of steam here. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I just actually, as we were talking about this before the podcast, I was I was googling trying to figure out what Milton's target was, and it's twenty one thousand homes by twenty thirty one. Um, I was partway through an article, but apparently that target is not legally enforceable, but 
let's going going back for a few for a few years it's been trying to choose my words a little more carefully here but it's been there's the broader impression that Milton Council is a bit more is a bit friendlier towards developers and there's a general sense of there's a general sense of fear of being stuck at the LPAT for whole swaths of for, for years, these larger developments. So um, that's probably why you get the whole um, Burlington Council so ready to sign on. And maybe all of these councils is because no one wants to spend the, spend the money to fight at LPAT to take whatever, to take a decision if, it's, uh, if it doesn't favor a municipality to court. And that's going to be hard, a hard spend of tax dollars to defend in the long, long run than just swallowing it now and, and signing on to these pledges. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, why does city sign them? Uh, even if, 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 you know, Bonington's case, certainly a good proportion of the, of the uh, council was, uh, elected on a platform of, of kind of controlling development uh, because they have no choice because of course they've got to sign you know if you don't if you don't do what the province asks you to do then they'll they'll be punished one way or the other but the, as Laura said the, the the legal side of it is not the is not the actual threat here the threat is if you don't play along with the province's games that they'll you you you, know, you fall out of favor with with uh, with the province and they'll find some way to be spiteful to you because that's the way these games work <laughs> um you know uh, insofar as the idea of cities signing up to guarantee an amount of development can i just point out just how utterly utterly and just utterly for a third time ridiculous that concept is in the entire um context of how planning happens in this province and across north america how, how do houses get built? We don't have public housing to speak of, not, not any significant degree in, in North America, or certainly not in Ontario. Um, so how, how does development happen? Well, a developer goes to a city and says, I want to build a, uh, some houses on this lot of land that I own. Uh, am I allowed to? And the city says yes or no. And that's the theory anyway. So the city has no power whatsoever to build a single house other than that tiny amount of public housing that does get built. And actually, that's done by the region, not by the cities. So it's not even a, a city, uh, a city responsibility. Um, so the, all the city can do is wait around and wait for those applications to come in. Nothing they can do to speed that process up. When the applications come in, sure, the city can then, uh, in theory, slow things down. It can reject applications. It can um, uh, it can ask for changes. It can do all this stuff, but. How does it work in, in, in fact? In fact, if the development's application is within the, the official plan, which, by the way, is signed off by the province and which is you know, a, a legally binding document, then that property will be built as of right. There's no appeals. There's no nothing. The city can't just, on a whim, turn anything down. It will be built. The only reason things take so damn long in this province is because nothing comes in under the official plan. Everything gets appealed. And either the city says, I'll just build it anyway, or it goes to LPAT. 
Um, and there at the LPAT, it will sit for 18 months, two years, three years, however long, waiting to be to be dealt with and to be uh, uh, sorted out. And then everything at LPAT is basically approved in one way or the other. It's basically a matter of negotiation between the city and the developer as to what actually gets built. So the whole delay comes into it because there's absolutely no clarity about on any development about what can actually be built because the city says this is what should happen. And the province says, no, we're going to second guess every single building to see if we actually want it built or not. It's the province and the province's ridiculous bloody system that creates these massive, massive delays and everything. Plus the fact that the, the planning staff are completely overworked. They don't have enough money to hire the people to do the amount of work they're faced with. The fact that the, 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 that the uh, environmental protections uh, side of things is now being thrown onto them as well as a, a shorter a shorter uh, period for them to actually try and do the jobs that they are legally obliged to do regardless. It's an absolutely ridiculous situation. So, you know, what does this change? Nothing. There is not a single thing that any city in this province can do to change the amount of development proposals that come to them or how long it takes for them to go through those proposals. Uh, what happens after, uh, I mean, frankly, you could abolish the cities from the process um, and the process will still be incredibly slow because someone would still have to do all this work. Uh, you know, well, I think someone has to oversee that, you know, there's enough bricks to hold the building up and that, you know, they're yeah. actually going to include sewers and, and roads and stuff like that. But I think you, I think you hit the, the nail on the head with it's one change thing, but what it does change is who's to blame for when it doesn't work. Yeah. It's passing the buck. It's like the, the problem is that we've, we've already heard, we've talked about before on this podcast, <clears throat> the province has pledged this 1.5 million new homes by 2031, which is to say it's an ambitious target is to say the least. Um, the pro no one in the history of Canada has ever built one and a half million homes in that time period. Never, It's never happened. So for the province to say, we're going to do it. Okay. That's impressive. The problem is to date, new home bills have been, haven't kept up with the expected targets. What What's needed each year to build, uh, to meet that target of one and a half million new homes. The new builds have just not met the met targets. The understanding is the, the projected new bills is going to continue to go down because uh, inflation and, and cost of building these targets has gone up. It is not, the market does not favor new builds right now. Uh, how can that, you know, that like these are things outside of hands, but it, Quite frankly, we're at a point where I don't, I don't think, oh, the economy isn't good enough. We need those. We need that housing yesterday. We needed that housing a decade ago, and we didn't. We're now in a position where we are basically up the creek without a paddle, folks. Um, we need the housing now to regulate housing prices, to, to, to find places <laughs> to live. And we're not there. And the, rather than either, as Roland said, the province and the feds kind of get their heads out of their collective butts and say, we're just going to build affordable socialized housing and say, that's the priority. Just go in and just build, 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 which according to the last couple of budgets from both Ontario and, the, and Ottawa, that's not happening. Uh, so they're leaving it up to the developers to do it. And the developers saying, well, it's not in our interest to build that kind of housing. It's just, it's not, economically viable for us. So we're stuck in this. So what this does is say, 
well, if they're not going to put the pressure on the developers to build the necessary housing, and now I do mean pressure, like you know, you you tax them or you fine them for not building. Uh, one of the things that I thought, you know, a vacancy tax on undeveloped, on owned undeveloped land could entice people to to do so. But that's not coming down the the wire. We're not going to hit that target. So what does this do? This leaves it to uh, the minister, uh, you know, Steve Clark and, and Doug Ford to say to, well, it's that pesky city council in Hamilton, that pesky city council in Milton or in Markham or in Richmond Hill, you guys didn't meet your targets. It's your fault that we didn't hit that one and a half million homes in 10 years time. And that's all this is. This is a pat, you're right. Well, it's a passing the buck and it's covering their butt so that when come election time, they say, we are nowhere close to this target people. They say, well, it's not our fault. It's the it's that pesky city council around the 905 that that aren't uh, holding yeah. up their end of the agreement. Oh, and it, you know, we'll come back to that. Sorry, Laura, go ahead. <laughs> it's also going back to the whole planning process. I mean, like the province does the province doesn't live in these. I mean, a lot of people making the decision at the provincial level don't mm-hmm. live in the communities affected. Good point. That's been Milton's whole. It's been Milton's whole argument for the last several years as they've fought sort of to grow and to be constructive about it. And it's also about how municipalities are designed. Like um, there, this sticks out in my mind that talking at council about how narrow the streets in the newer, in the newer subdivisions are how narrow these garages there's people complaining about how uh, how they couldn't get like a minivan inside the garage because the garage is too narrow and it's like i had to fight i had to really bite my tongue to to keep from saying well you sat on a council that approved these developments the way they are where was this conversation five three years ago when that was going through approval you know, so it's really, it's kind of, and the other, and the other thing is um, maybe it's time to start talking about really rethinking how we see sort of the conventional home. I know the provincial idea and certainly that utopia, utopian idea is to have single family homes, nice little plot of land, kids playing in the, two kids in the backyard playing and all, all of this and um, municipalities, at least in the South and South Southern Ontario, where we are pretty crammed for land, getting pretty crammed for land here. It's not like, it's not realistic anymore to do that. And it's no. probably time we started. Well, and the, the province, that. you know, to be fair to the province, which, you know, I don't enjoy doing, but I will be in this case. I mean, they have in the legislation last year, I can't remember which bill number it was or what act number it was, but, um, you know, that there was, uh, it's kind of been overshadowed by everything that has happened since, but there was legislation about opening up that kind of missing middle development. So um, enabling more, more development in, um, in existing single-family home neighbourhoods to allow for, you know, duplexes, triplexes, uh, up to sort of six-storey um, apartment buildings, things like that. Um, 
which is a good thing. I think that's a really good thing. Um, mm-hmm. This idea of kind of these uniform um, cookie cutter um, single family home neighborhoods where, where you're utterly car dependent. I mean, I think it was the, say the narrower streets you were talking about in Milton. I mean, Burlington had a development, I think it was the orchard. Uh, yep. I can't remember yep. um, where they had narrower streets. And the idea was, that, you know, we want people to be less car centric, to be able to walk around the community for the streets to be safe for the children or admirable, admirable objectives. But here's the problem with the orchard. There's no bloody bus transit around, you know, when I mean, there is some, but it's very limited. You basically got to leave the orchard to get the bus. Yeah. So as a result, everybody's bus, the buses can't fit on those streets. When the buses can't, yes, that too. Um, so it, you know, the the kind of I mean, as so often with with city plan, planning, no, no disrespect to city plans, the, the the ideology and and the reality just don't really. Uh, uh, well, it comes together too. Come, well. It comes down that the planning process, as it's supposed to work, was you create an official plan. So the idea is like this is what the entire city will look like in 10 years time, right? A, a general guideline of we, we expect this much density in this neighborhood. This is where businesses will go. And this is how we're going to plan out the, the, the urban transit network, et cetera. Okay. That all looks great on paper. The problem is when you get into, oh, the, the developer wants to change the plan to allow more people in a particular neighborhood or to uh, to put fewer people in a particular neighborhood, perhaps to allow more, uh, you know, larger homes and whatnot that throws off the plan. Cause to meet those targets, that means you have to push people into a different neighborhood to meet your targets, which throws off the, but the, the plan and things don't look as you had intended. Well, and that, it, that it kind of comes under the whole process of like that, 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 the, the constant being able to appeal throws off the vision of, okay, well, we had a plan to meet these targets. We're going to, you know, 10 years mm-hmm. time, we're going to meet the targets in this way. When the developer says, oh no, I want to build a high rise here and I want to add in another 500 units. Okay. That's great. But you say, well, no, that means there's a greater density there, which means later density there, which means no, it doesn't make sense to build an urban transit system then because only people in this neighborhood are going to need it. Etc. Like it, 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 all these things matter. That that everything comes back to the LPAT. I mean, you can say I'm obsessed about it or 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 <laughs> not, but it all comes back to that. I mean, ironically, you know, Doug Ford's, you know, the dear departed Rob Ford was one of the chief advocates of the idea that an official plan should be an official plan and should be, you know, unless there's an extremely good reason, extremely good reason, then if it says. 10 stories on the official plan, then 10 stories it is. And, you know, the cities are obligated to update their official plans. The province has to sign off on the official plan, as does the region. Um, this, these things go through multiple stages of everybody saying, yeah, that's a good plan. Now, I mean, I was kind of involved in the whole, uh, well, shit show, for a better word, of Burlington's official plan uh, process. Um <clears throat> And I saw, you know, the uh, the new official plan from Rick Goldring's uh, era be approved, go through and start to be used. The very first development, the very first development that came through the bright, shiny new official plan, which was going to solve all the problems, was 
massively over the new height limits that the official plan had introduced. Massively, like yeah. double. I can't remember <laughs> how many. It was if it was 15, they asked for 25. If it was 18, they asked for 28. I can't remember what it was exactly. Second plan, uh, the second uh, proposal that came along massively, even more massively over the bright, shiny new official plan. Then that official plan was thrown out because you had a new council and Mary M. Ed Ward. And, the, and uh, the, the proposals kept on coming in month by month, new proposals, all blowing out the water, every official plan, old, new, whatever. Um, and of course, they're all now currently sitting in pro- various stages of, of appeal and, and, and everything else. Um, where, they're, where they've now been for four years and counting. We're into our fifth year of some of these, these proposals sitting at Elpa and goodness knows what. So, and you said a few, a few minutes ago, Joe, it's like, you know, no one has ever built the kind of housing supply that we need mm-hmm. uh, at the speed that we need. And it's like, yeah, no, that's absolutely right. In North America, no one has ever done that because North America doesn't have public housing to speak of. Uh, or certainly Canada doesn't, or certainly Ontario doesn't. If, if you want to see places that have built exactly that kind of speed and exactly that kind of volume very successfully uh, for decades on end, you have to look at Europe where, where public housing was, you know, like after the Second World War, countries built huge estates. Now, are those estates perfect? No, there's all kinds of problems with them uh, uh, very often, but not all, the vast majority are absolutely fine. But cities became landlords and were in the business of building building high quality, uh, uh, well maintained, affordable housing for uh, for large large numbers of but, of uh, blue collar workers and, oh yeah. and everything else. So you can do it, but well, we can do the it. The will now. is not there. We can do it now. Like I don't think we need the will to to do it. I think the the problem is we, we just nobody has the backbone to stand up to developers and say you're going to build what we want how we want when we want it and exactly. that's ultimately what this comes down to is that you know <laughs> the like i i'm a big proponent of inclusionary zoning which is when you you when a developer comes to to the city and says i want to build this neighborhood or i want to build this high rise a fixed percentage of those units i'm, I'm going to say 10 percent because i think we need to get this the number up there, but 10% of all those units go into a regional housing corporation. So you, they just automatically take ownership of them and they can then rent them out or lease them out on a, on a fix on a, a, a fixed income schedule uh, to, for as basically as public housing. And I think that would increase the number of socialized public assisted housing on the market, bringing down market pricing but the government doesn't have to go rushing out to say okay because right now we're, we're in a problem we don't have the volume there to make this work the the the, the province and the feds have just not built they, and i don't think they have the 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 tax the 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 kitty in the bank to just go and build the 1.5 million homes that are required in ontario to to satisfy this demand so we're between a rock and a hard place. You're going to have to push back on developers and say, no, you need to build. You're going to have to build, hand some over to the public good and use things like a vacancy tax for municipalities to pressure uh, the vast areas of land that exist all over the 905 
of undeveloped land that are owned, but waiting for the right quote unquote market factors to make it an, an enticeable uh, uh, mm. moment to go build. Say, well, we're going to make it because we're just now going to make it a an onerous financial burden for you just to sit on undeveloped land. You now need to go and develop it. And yeah, we're going to flood the market with 1.5 million homes over 10 years. But that's kind of the point, isn't it? Is That's the, why we need the 1.5 million is to bring down housing prices and make housing mm-hmm. affordable for families to live, work, and play in the 905 and Ontario as a whole. That's my rant. <laughs> well, to sort of poke, poke a couple of holes there. No, nope, we're Melton- all done. That's it. That's time for today. <laughs> <laughs> in Melton, there's large, there's large swaths of rural area up north of the 401, Camelville, Brookville, Moffat. And largely they're not, there's some pockets where they're building the larger estate homes but with some land around them, but um, it's mostly farmland and, you know, and there's a, there's probably a reason for it. You know, it's all green belt. It's all, well, you could debate the green belt is another, that's a a different episode altogether, (laughs) but um, there's green belt, there's Niagara Scarment commission. There's all of these other, hoops to jump through it's probably why no developer has ever tried to go up there because by the time you're done um like and it's also because in, in milton there's, there's plenty of white belt you know milton has a lot of white belt uh land still which the developers already own uh and they may even have planning approvals already in place uh they're just not building on them yet um so i mean i mean yeah, I mean, the irony of this situation is, is that, that so Mississauga, uh, Mississauga basically has no white belt left. So land that can be developed on if the city chooses to allow it. So the, the city is the sole controlling entity. Um, you know, the green belt is, well, we want the green belt to be kept and, 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 and so it should be. And, you know, the further you get out of urban areas, the harder it should be to build and the more hoops you should have to jump through because we don't want people building willy-nilly on stuff like that. Uh, we want them building in or very close to ex- existing municipalities. Um, and Milton has that space. Um, but like I say, I mean, I'm sure all that land is already owned by developers. So if it's not being built on, it's because the developers don't want to build on it yet. That's the only <laughs> reason. Um <laughs> it's it's not a matter of the city's really standing in the way. Prior uh, to the prior to the last election, the uh, the province came out with a housing report that we talked about it again on this podcast. In that report, the the report said there's no need to uh, go into the green belt. There's enough undeveloped white belt land to meet uh, targets, as well as the the notion of redeveloping some existing neighborhoods. Uh, within municipalities, they, we could easily meet our targets without the need to go into Greenbelt. So to to keep the the you know the the various uh, uh, bureaucracies that are that are there essentially to protect the Greenbelt and prevent develop as Roland said from building willy nilly on oh that plot of land. Yeah, I kinda, I'm kind of like let's keep it because I I do believe we have enough space existing to make this work. It's just it's a little bit 
it's easier just to pave into a piece of farmland than it is to uh, to go and, and redevelop a, an older derelict uh, uh, building. And, and you know, I'm going to use the example of I, I know it's irritating when people who were born in other countries constantly raise the, uh, other countries some kind of example of everything that's good. I'm not doing that. I promise you I'm not doing that. But it is just an example that I'm familiar with. So I grew up just outside London. The London Greenbelt, which was put in place after the Second World War, was right on my doorstep. Uh, everything that was green when I was five years old is still green. Um, and, and, you know, there have been challenges to the Greenbelt, and there's been, you know, the same stresses and strains that happen everywhere. Basically, London has not changed in terms of its uh, greater London has not changed in terms of its dimensions um, since uh, way back before before the Second World War. Um, and yet in that same period, the population of London has gone up. Uh, I'm just trying to sort of Google it, but I'm going to guess it's you know at least doubled, if, if not more. Um, you know. So it's all about finding, you know, fitting people in, increasing density. Uh, uh, and, and actually, many of the London boroughs have um, very, uh, very few high rises because the councils there do have a fair amount of power. But despite that, they've managed to increase density and increase population. Um, so this idea that that you know the only way pop we can ever build houses is by going into green you know building on green stuff is it's just demonstrably not true um and yeah. it, and we speak in this sort of way that you know ontario is short of land it's like we live in the second biggest country in the world we're not short of land um we're short of farmland very short of of, of farmable land that will produce food uh, so really, you know, the last thing we, we want can to do is build on that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it's like unless you want to be completely or even more dependent on states and the rest of the world to sort of keep us in in anything just, other than you know beef and potatoes. Um, yeah, we just basically uh, uh, need a rethink on how to use it. Well, yeah, yeah and that, that rethink's yeah. kind of already yeah. happened because the places to grow act was all about increasing density and stopping sprawl, and this government's just for you know because this government is so utterly devoid of any kind of intelligence or ideas, it, the only way it can ever think to, to turn around a situation is, is to, well, just take away all the rules and then the things will sort themselves out. Right. Uh, and that, again, you yeah. look at the rest of the world, that's not how there's ever been success in development. Unless uh, you want slums, unless you want to ha have us all living in favelas, uh, which well, I don't on, think on, we do, you know. On, on that note, Roland, uh, there's another angle of this I, I thought I'd throw out to you guys to... <clears throat> pick apart um so I'm, I'm looking at the st catherine standard and they're talking about in st catherine's uh they're being asked by the province to build eleven thousand homes uh and that's all well they're asking the the city mm -hmm. of st catherine's was interesting that they're trying to push back say we need appropriate funding to go along with this uh this pledge that we're going to make and that's the other part that i think is interesting is yeah. this urgency for the province to go to Milton, Burlington, St. Catharines, Niagara Falls, Hamilton, wherever, and say, you need to build X thousand homes by 2031. But the province took away under the, the bill, bill 23, uh, the, de the, the development charges that would go along with those developments, uh, which again, I, I, there's problems with the mess of like the, the kind of pyramid Ponzi scheme nature of development uh, from the provincial from the municipal point of view. But the question I have is just how exactly does do these municipalities 
pay for the cost of this, you know, pay for the upkeep of sewers, hydro, uh, you know, road maintenance, all that stuff that does that will inevitably come along with this. Um, if there is no middle density permitted to to renovate these these existing homes, and we're just supposed to keep building out, 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 you know, are are basically cities being handed a bill of goods and no way of paying for it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, actually, I, um, um, sorry, uh, Bunters yeah, Marianne Ward made that made that point last week that you know yeah. they're looking at a sort of thirty six million dollar uh, a shortfall, um, you know, and there's been all this sort of talk of the of, of the cities being being uh, being made good, which is a very kind of sort of vague statement. It's like, oh yeah, no, we'll make sure that you're you, that you're not losing out. Well, I don't know, I don't have a whole lot of faith in any of that. Um, so yeah, the the in the, if I was a city, I wouldn't be signing any pledge of any kind to the province unless I had yeah had the funding. Yeah, yeah. I know. Well, just for just a, a for instance, um, Milton for at least probably at least as long as I've I've been working as a reporter since around two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and um at least since then Milton's been at least two schools behind in growth. And Mm -hmm. that objection has that uh, not objection, that issue has come up again and again as they've approved um, different, as they've approved different developments. And with the last couple, within the last 18 months, a couple of years, obviously times, for votes in time for the provincial election, um, the pro our our MPP Perm Gill has announced several new new schools to try, but it's almost like a ha- it's almost like a hamster wheel effect that they may never catch up. I, I know like, um, to the uh, development because you know, when those schools open, I mean it's it's a ridiculous situation of a brand new school opening already with temporary. Uh, I don't know what they call them. Te- we used to call them portables. So a brand new school open with like 20 portables outside. Yeah. It's like, well, what the hell? <laughs> you know, maybe you should have built a bigger school. I don't know, but, but I guess that's, that's a symptom of just how behind the whole situation is. And maybe they think one well, day those portables will I know, disappear. But. I know when I, I, back in the day, I used to uh, attend a number of Halton Catholic <laughs> school board meetings, and this is like this is a major issue for them was trying to plan where people were going to move. So like, when you know, and this is a case in Milton, they were talking of oh, there's a new development slated to be built. So under legislation, they're able to go in and kind of say, well, we're going to take so much, um, kind of pur- purchase land, uh so to speak, so that we can own that land so that when you start building the neighborhood around it, we'll have uh, a, a, plot, a plot of land to build an elementary school on it. Um, I, I don't know if that model necessarily is, is efficient to meet the demand uh, or meet the, because it's all based on projections, right? It's all based on, we, we expect so many people and so many children to move into this neighborhood you know, maybe we were talking about like there's a just yeah. I'm mean, I'm just spitballing here. Maybe maybe the the model idea is kind of outdated that it can't it just necessarily can't keep up with 
with growth th- this way. I mean, I, I, I mean, things will work themselves out eventually. I mean, the, the market reaches its level. Um, I, I think the idea, you know, everybody on all sides of the development. If you if you if you want to look at the public, the developers, uh, and the various levels of government as a kind of three or arguably four kind of uh, participants in the in the whole development thing, um, the on, the only the only participant who gets anything out of the appeals process is the province, um, because that's where their power yes. lies is, is in the appeals. <laughs> developers don't want everything going to appeal because it's really really expensive and it puts the cost of housing up and the rest. Um, the city doesn't want everything to go to appeal because that means they're cut out of the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the developers and the cities would, would very much um, agree on the need for um, certainty at the start of the process rather than a constant negotiation process. So, so basically any major development in this province is a process of negotiation between the city and the developer. Uh, that is where the ELPA acts as the arbiter. Um the rest of the world doesn't do it this way. Uh, the rest of the world says, okay, well, the, the city's the judge. Um, and, okay, if it's completely outrageous, then you have your legal recourse to say the city is being outrageous. Um, mm-hmm. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. Everybody will have something along those lines. That's, that's why we have elections. Outrageous. Yeah. That's well, why we have elections. Like in for, 29% in... turnout rates. Well, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Which was but, absolutely but, dismal, but... You know, and I mean, I funny, you know, you look at um, California as a sort of case in point where they have really strong um, councils and, and arguably, arguably much too strong um, and councils that, you know, Los Angeles has something like 100 cities within it or 50. I can't remember how many it is, but well, like, Los Angeles doesn't really exist. It's actually this amalgamation of completely inefficient, ridiculous municipalities that that have basically where you can't get anything built because yeah the nimby thing is a problem and there's yeah. no way of kind of controlling that so you obviously have to get a situation where where the balance of the needs of the larger community is balanced against the needs of you know a given street uh but we have completely the opposite the opposite situation and, and that a situation where everything is appealed doesn't help anybody you know i mean it's like was it good 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 fences make good neighbors or good you know certainty and boundaries and clarity help everybody to know mm. okay well there's no point appealing this because we know that the city says this that's what's going to be built okay so we'll put in the proposal that says that at the outset no appeal we can build it right away no extra costs and we're laughing um this idea that basically every official plan is a starting point of a conversation is not how it was supposed to work at the outset. No. <clears throat> the appeal no. should be by far the exception to the general rule of things being built within the plan. Um, any other solution yeah. just makes no sense whatsoever to anybody. It hurts everybody. It puts up costs for everybody. It slows down the process for everybody. Now, it still wouldn't fix everything because developers are sitting on a massive stockpile of approvals that they have in their back pockets. They're allowed to build and they're not building. Um, nothing that, that the promise is doing with the cities is going to fix that problem. There's thousands and thousands of approvals that are just sitting there. Um, 
so like you said joe i mean either either we have a situation where, where where approvals simply expire after a number of years it's like okay you haven't built you don't have an approval anymore go away and that's kind of how it's better work now but it doesn't actually um uh, or or like you say sort of just basically you know fines for non-development um uh yeah well, there are there are clear ways in which this this whole yeah. process could be improved, but no one has the political will. There's, I'm not seeing it from the from the liberals. I'm not seeing it from the NDP either because they never talk about this stuff. Um, so I don't, it's not like if there's a change of government, I think anything is going to improve. Um, but uh, you know, that, there's clearly a way that this could be done if anybody had the stomach for it. Yeah. Well, to go back to there's a couple of points I think Joel brought up about financing and um, how that was going to work. Um, in Melton, there's been, in recent, within the last couple of years, there's been recent budget discussions where um, basically it's that um, residential growth is outpacing uh, business growth. Um, to explain that a bit further, businesses, businesses pay more more taxes so it's a problem because uh the tax base the tax base gets shifted over to the residents who are struggling as we all know with affordability with mortgage payments with interest rates with jobs with and on and on it goes and um so there's going to be and the sort there's also so there's been like, um, I think I want to say pre-blending, I want to say around the five to seven percent tax increase municipally. I'm not sure I without looking it up. So it's around that. Yeah. And that's the kind it's, of numbers it's around that across from Milton, yeah. But that's supposed to pay. There's been this whole big thing for the last 10 years or so. Growth should pay for itself growth we in that and within the last i don't know two two years right prior to this last municipal election they've started changing their tune a lot that growth can't pay growth can't pay for itself because you've got you've still got to pay for resourcing so all of your water your hydro etc has to go into these new larger buildings um and streets and street paving and all the parks, et cetera. Um, so the growth isn't paying for itself. It probably never did. And now it's almost, now it's almost so, um, now it's on the residents' backs to pay for these things, new schools, et cetera, et cetera, as Apparently, the development charges have been frozen. So, yeah, but I mean, I heard someone say the other day uh, with regard to Hamilton's new council, and it's like, oh, well, the, the taxes are going up. We've got this left wing socialist council in Hamilton now. Oh, first thing they do is put the taxes up. It's like, I mean, this that from the province's point of view is like game set and match. They're like, fantastic. We've done this thing where basically we have downloaded costs that developers should be paying for developing land onto the city we've slashed development charges and made the city go and find that money 
uh, forcing the cities to put up taxes. And what do people do? They blame the, the council uh, for, for those increased taxes. And it's like, well, what the? It's nothing to do with ha- Hamilton's new, new, new council. I mean, it, it's just like, well, either we slash everything um, or we put up taxes just so we can keep the, keep the lights on at City Hall. Uh, but, the, but that, you know, unfortunately, again, that's the way people think. It's like, oh, taxes got up. Obviously, the council is the, are the ones who did that because they're a bunch of leftists, you know. And I said, like, well, you know, was I think it was Vaughan or someone like that, which is hardly a bunch of leftists were like predicting uh, some crazy uh, percent increase uh, a few months ago. I don't know if it actually turned out that way in the end, but um, it was like 100% over four years or something like oh, that. East, I mean, East Gwillenberry. Was right, uh, right. talking about that. Um, I am going to say we're coming up on an hour <laughs> this episode, um, so I'm going to say let's uh, put a pin in this conversation because I suspect we're going to keep coming back to it. Um, and yeah, I'd say like wh- why don't we call it uh, an end for this episode, and we'll uh, pick it up uh, some other time. So thanks uh, very much, Laura, for uh, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. The Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.